Hello and welcome to Abe Papam, episode 253, Blessed Pius IX. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So this episode is going to be a bit of a doozy, just to warn you now. Blessed Pius IX is not only one of the more interesting popes we've met for a long time, but he was pope for a long time. In fact, the longest time. His 32 years on the chair of St. Peter is the longest papacy since St. Peter. And that papacy occurred in a time of intense upheavals in and around Italy and in the church herself, a time which changed fundamentally the papacy's relationship to the modern world and to secular power, a time where the conflict between the traditionalists and reforming forces of the church were coming to a head. And to top it all off, it had an ecumenical council thrown in for good measure. So let's start. Today's pope was born Giovanni Maria Giambattista Pietro Pellegrino Isidorio Mastari Ferretti on May 13, 1792. His family was made up of minor nobles. His father was a count and lived in Senegalia, a small town outside of Ancona on the Adriatic coast of Italy. His uncle and his great-granduncle were both bishops. The latter was a cardinal. Young Giovanni Maria was the ninth and youngest child in his family, and he was fairly devout, but not overly traditionalist. Giovanni Maria was diagnosed with a form of epilepsy at the age of 10, which was apparently quite severe and caused him a lot of pain and difficulty. He began his studies in Volterra, and then he went to Rome in 1809 to study philosophy. Despite his illness, he was particularly pious and kind, and it was clear to everyone that his suffering was being offered in some small way to God. In 1810, he had to curtail his studies and come home because of the political upheavals surrounding Napoleon's conquest of Rome. In part because of this political upheaval, and in part because of his father's wishes, he asked permission to join the Papal Noble Guard, which was a group of soldiers whose job it was to protect the Pope when he moved around Rome and in Italy in general. But he was refused because of his epilepsy. So in 1816, he turned his attention instead to the priesthood, which is probably what he really wanted and not just what his father wanted. Now, this is not your typical Roman careerist vocation, hoping to serve in a congregation and then kind of work your way up. The young Giovanni Maria had a pastoral heart and an ascetic and pious demeanor, and he wanted to serve the Lord. But there were difficulties here too, and some of those were caused by his epilepsy. The illness would have prevented his ordination, but Pope Pius VII personally encouraged him in his vocation and intervened at the young seminarian's request. The Pope gave him permission to be ordained, provided that he should have an assistant priest serve at Mass with him in case something should happen during the Mass. He was ordained a priest on April 10, 1819. The young father, Giovanni Maria, was then assigned by Pope Pius to serve as the spiritual director for an orphan asylum in Rome called the Tata Giovanni. Not long after his ordination, Father Giovanni Maria's epilepsy went away and never returned. Now, after a couple of years serving the poor youth in Rome and in the surrounding areas, Father Giovanni Maria heard about a papal expedition to Chile, which he thought was primarily a missionary endeavor. It was really more of a diplomatic one. And so he asked for permission to attend as the secretary for the mission. And even though it was more of a diplomatic mission than an evangelical one, he served the Holy See's cause well went all the way to Chile in 1824, crossing the Atlantic and crossing the Andes Mountains. As I said, he served the mission well. He was, no one complained about him. In fact, many people thought he served valiantly. And he returned in 1825, and the Pope gave him greater responsibilities. He was put in charge of a charitable institution in Rome, and then in 1827 made the Bishop of Spoleto. He was ordained to the Episcopacy on June 3rd, 1827, at the Church of San Pietro in Vincoli in Rome. 
Now, during his service as the bishop in Spoleto, he came face to face with the divisions in Italy between the radical liberals who were Masonic and fomented revolution and were anti-clerical, and then the traditionalists exemplified by the Pope. The revolution was put down in 1831 by Pope Gregory XVI. He intervened on behalf of the revolutionaries in his own diocese and obtained pardon for them. He was much more moderate and pastoral as a bishop. Though he didn't agree with the radical ideologies sweeping Italy at the time, he didn't think it a, the appropriate response was a harsh crackdown that the traditionalist popes pursued. In 1832, the still very young Bishop Mastai was, I realize I just totally butchered his last name earlier, but Giovanni Maria Mastai is his name. This young bishop was transferred to the Diocese of Imola, and then in 1840 he was named a cardinal. He was a good bishop and widely respected for being moderate and realistic and having a pious devotion for the care of his flock. In 1846, at the death of Pope Gregory XVI, the conclave was fairly divided between the hardline traditionalists and the mold of Pope Gregory and those who were more moderate. The former wanted Cardinal Lambruschini, the Secretary of State for Pope Gregory, to be elected, and the latter organized in favor of Cardinal Mastai. It was a close-front thing, and the cardinals who didn't want the traditionalist position had to act quickly. The news reached them that the Cardinal Archbishop of Milan was on his way to the conclave with the veto against Cardinal Mastai by the Austrian Emperor. And so the pressure of this impending veto consolidated the cardinals around the young Cardinal Mastai, and on the second day he was elected Pope before the veto could arrive. The new Pope, who was elected at a very young age, being only 54 years old, took the name Pius IX after Pope Pius VII, who encouraged his priestly vocation. Now, everyone in Italy was ecstatic at the new pope. The break with the traditionalist papacies of the past was what the people wanted. And the new pope started off by bringing some much-needed reform. He released all the political prisoners in the papal states. He declared a general amnesty. The next year, he set up a series of consultative and governing councils involving both priests and laymen to assist with the governance of the papal states and give it more of a reform mindset. He gave some freedom of the press. He appointed a lay minister for the papal states in 1848, Pellegrino Rossi. But the period of good feelings would not last. Because if that year 1848 stands out to you, it means you've learned your European history. It was a year of incredible upheaval and revolution across the continent, starting in France with the foundation of the Second French Republic and the overthrow of their monarchy again, and then spreading through Germany, Hungary, Austria, and Italy. In northern Italy, there was pressure placed on the Pope to assist in the North's revolution against Austria. But the Pope would do no such thing. He was not an absolutist. But he wouldn't go along with the revolutions. He wanted a moderate response, sensible forms that enabled good governance and a healthy state in Italy. But it wasn't enough for the radicals, and they turned on him decisively. In November of 1848, as the lay prime minister Pellegrino Rossi was going to preside at the opening of parliament in Rome, he was stabbed to death by an Italian radical. This was the signal to others in Italy to rise up against the Pope and demand self-government for the Papal States, and the cause was taken up by the Carbonari, groups of Italian radicals who were Masonic in origin, which had sprung up over the previous decades, and which were devoted to a secular, anti-clerical, united Italy. Crowds appeared outside Rossi's house, chanting to his family inside, Blessed is the hand that stabbed the Rossi. 6,000 armed Carbonari with canyons moved into St. Peter's Square. Shots rang out as the Pope was inside, fearing for his life, and it became clear that the revolution had indeed come to Rome. Now, on the night of November 24th, the Pope realized that he could not stay at the Vatican and remain alive. His guard of only 100 Swiss guards was not enough to hold off the revolutionaries, and his conciliatory gestures wouldn't satisfy them either. The mobs kept attacking the Vatican, and the Bavarian ambassador, who had remained in the Vatican the whole time, helped coordinate a daring escape. The Pope dressed like a plain priest, wearing oversized glasses and normal priest clothes. 
and took with him the blessed sacrament which has been reserved in his private chapel. They left through a secret passage and then took a carriage south out of Rome. Apparently there, while he was waiting for another carriage to pick him up, the Pope chatted with a carbonari who was on guard, not realizing that he was talking to the Pope in disguise. After another carriage ride, he arrived at Gaeta in southern Italy, where he would remain in exile, and he'd remain there for over a year. The revolutions convinced the Pope that his moderate approach had failed. The only thing he could do is hold firm to more traditional convictions about the role of the Pope and his relationship with secular governments. Now, I think it's important to pause here and see this in context. As Americans, as many of you listeners are, we have an inherent bias towards democratic government, and for good reason. The difference between our understanding of democracy and what the Pope was facing now was the context of the original French Revolution. There, democracy came with a radical destruction of the traditional order, both of the family, morality, even to the level of destroying the calendar in the days of the week and the church herself. This freedom was not merely political autonomy, but a radical license and a destruction of the divine order of things, not just separation of church and state, but the regulation of the church to the backwater of history. Now, while we've had a tradition of separation of church and state, the reality in Europe had been that the Pope had something to say to world leaders and that his authority should guide and direct secular governments. And when the moderate project failed in Pope Pius's eyes, he had to stand firm against this anti-clerical, anti-church radicalism, which came with the democratic impulses in Italy and that led to a more anti-democratic stance on the side of the Pope. The Pope had to call for help, and he could not retake Rome on his own. And finally, in 1849, the French, under the new French president, Louis Napoleon, who would soon become the emperor Napoleon III, came to his aid. The French troops reestablished order in Rome, and the Pope was able to return in 1850. The French forces remained for decades, supporting the Pope against the Italian radicals and revolution. And because of that, it was never entirely a stable place. Rome and Pope Pius IX's papacy would never be the same. Now, believe it or not, the thing that Pope Pius was most concerned about when he was in exile in Gaeta was not the political situation in Rome and the new Roman Republic that was being set up by the radicals who had taken charge, but Our Lady. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was something that was traditional, but not something that had been defined officially by the Church. And the Pope had a great devotion to Our Lady under that title, and he wanted to define solemnly this doctrine. And so he began a process of consultation with the bishops and theologians of the church there in Gaeta. Theologians from around the world came back with their thoughts, and the vast majority of them were positive. So in 1854, the Pope solemnly defined that Mary was conceived without sin in the bull Ineffabilius Deus. After outlining all the reasons for the declaration and its support in tradition and history, the Pope writes, Wherefore, in humility and fasting, we unceasingly offered to our private prayers as well as the public prayers of the Church to God the Father through his Son, that he would deign to direct and strengthen our mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. In like manner did we implore the help of the entire heavenly host as we ardently invoke the paraclete. Accordingly, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the honor of the holy and undivided Trinity, for the glory and adornment of the Virgin Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and for the furtherance of the Catholic religion, by the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own, quote, we declare, pronounce, and define that in doctrine which holds that our most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God, and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. This was not only a big moment for the church because of the Marian devotion, but it was also a big moment for the papacy. The other doctrine which was floating around and not quite defined was that of papal infallibility. 
this definition of the doctrine by the Pope, not in an ecumenical council, but still with the consultation of the whole church, seemed to anticipate that definition. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, the Pope saw himself in this time of a people as a point of doctrinal clarity and saw his duty as pushing back against the modern heresies all around him. And this involved the positive aspects of promoting the formation of the clergy, which he did assiduously in Rome, but also the negative aspects of condemning modern errors. Now, the most famous of these were the documents Quanta Cura and the corresponding syllabus of errors, which was published with it. These documents listed and critiqued harshly modern viewpoints and beliefs, which were pervasive in society and which were against the teaching of the church. These errors were not merely social or an intellectual reality. The Pope had more political issues to go with them. In 1859, the Second War of Italian Independence began. Now, up to this point, you probably know that from years of listening to this podcast, Italy was divided into a multitude of smaller states with Sicily and Naples in the south and the Austrian-controlled regions in the north and Lombardy around Milan and Venice, and a number of smaller states in Tuscany, and the papal states smack dab in the middle. And it had been papal policy to try and prevent unification of the South and the North under one control because it basically left the Pope helpless between the two of them. If one of them turned against him, he could always turn to the other for help. In 1859, Count Cavour, the prime minister of Piedmont, Sardinia, a small state which also had the island of Sardinia in the north, made a secret alliance with the French Emperor Napoleon III against the Austrians in northern Italy. It was to Napoleon's benefit for the Austrians to be weakened, and so he sided with these nascent Italian nationalists. Uh, Prime Minister Cavour raised a small army and defeated the Austrians in battle and annexed Lombardy. After signing a truce with Austria, which kept its territory near Venice, Piedmont then annexed most of northern Italy, including some parts of the Papal States, which were impossible for the Pope to defend. He was reliant on Napoleon III for his own safety as it was, and Napoleon III wasn't going to go against the Austrians after signing this secret treaty. Now, the next step was the south, and Cavour sent to Sicily the now-famous Giuseppe Garibaldi with a thousand men to foment a revolution there. Garibaldi was immensely successful, and Naples and Sicily were added to the territory of Piedmont, Sardinia. In 1861, the king of Piedmont, Sardinia, Victor Emmanuel II, was proclaimed king of the United Italy. And it was clear that they didn't want to stop with just the territory they had gained. The papal states were right in the middle, and had already been profoundly reduced in size— King Victor Emmanuel negotiated with Napoleon III to remove his troops in the Papal States, which were eventually removed entirely by 1866, with just the exception of a small garrison in Rome. Venice, meanwhile, was taken in what we call the Third War of Italian Independence in 1866. All that was left that was not part of the New Kingdom of Italy was Rome and the territory immediately around it. And because of its historical importance in the heart of the Roman Empire and the heart of Italy, Rome was what all of them wanted. With this secular military pressure building, the Pope sought to combat its intellectual underpinnings. In 1867, he announced his intentions to call an ecumenical council at the Vatican in 1869. The purpose of the council was to combat modern errors and to articulate the dogma of papal infallibility. The council opened on December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, in 1869. The majority of bishops were emphatically supportive of this definition. They saw it as both the tradition of the Church and as a necessary way to help the Pope defend the Church against the modern mood, which was threatening it on every side, intellectually and militarily. First resolve of the Council was the Constitution Dei Filius, which explicitly affirmed a live Church teaching, which moderns had doubted. Then, after much discussion and debate, the Council moved on to papal infallibility, and it was proclaimed in the Constitution Pastor Eternus. 
The Pope had always had the charism of infallibility when teaching ex cathedra, that is officially from the chair of Peter, about faith and morals. The Pope's authority is based on his ability to be preserved from error by the Holy Spirit when interpreting divine revelation. He couldn't reveal something new, but he could interpret what was there. The council, however, was not solemnly concluded. In 1870, Napoleon III declared war against Prussia over perceived diplomatic slights. He needed all the forces he could get, and so he pulled out the last French troops from Rome. And this was all that was needed for the Italians in Garibaldi. The Italian army surrounded Rome and entered the city on September 19, 1870. The Pope ordered that as soon as the first cannon shots would fire, the papal forces would negotiate a surrender. The Italians proclaimed Rome annexed to the new Italian kingdom, and the Pope declared himself a prisoner in the Vatican. Even though he was free to leave if he wanted, in fact, most papal governments was left unharmed. It was just restricted to the Vatican Palace. He bitterly condemned the Italian kingdom. He refused to acknowledge King Victor Emmanuel II, and he retreated to the Vatican completely. The loss of papal territory substantially changed the church. After 1870, the Pope was no longer encumbered by papal state governance and had much more of an international outlook. And this happened over time, but you can see it even in Pope Pius IX's pontificate. The cardinals he appointed during this time were much less minor Italian bishops and much more international. The first American cardinal, William McCloskey, was appointed during his time, and the great St. John Henry Newman, the Anglican convert, was also named a cardinal by Pope Pius IX. The Italian state did not prevent the freedom of movement of Vatican officials or the appointment of cardinals, and in general, the Pope's exile was more self-imposed, although his legal situation was precarious. Where was he a citizen? What was his power? What was his territory? Did he even own the Vatican? Did he even own the, the property around it? What was his status? It was very unclear. Now, speaking of America, the Pope created a substantial number of new American dioceses, and he established the American Seminary in Rome, the Pontifical North American College. And it was said that when he went to tour the seminary when it was first opened, before the 1870 disaster in which Rome was conquered, he stopped in front of a bust of George Washington. And in front of this bust, he said, this is a great man, the father of his country. And then the vice rector asked him for a favor. And he says, in front of this august personage, I can deny you nothing. And then the vice rector asked for a day off from classes for the seminarians for the next day, which he granted. Now, the Pope's long reign finally started coming towards an end. The Italian king, Victor Emmanuel II, died in January of 1878. And his opponent, Pope Pius IX, died one month later, on February 7, 1878, after a papacy of 32 years. The Pope was no longer a temporal ruler. His political status was incredibly vague, but his status in the church was incredibly elevated, or at least defined, as both a moral and doctrinal leader. Pope Pius IX was buried in the Basilica of St. Lawrence outside the walls. He was beatified by Pope St. John Paul II in the year 2000. He was succeeded by the third longest pontificate after Peter and himself, believe it or not, by Pope Leo XIII, and we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.